Well, hey, we are in a series entitled uh, The Way, and we've been looking at how Jesus presents himself as the way. And we've been centering on this verse in John 14, one of the most iconic verses in the Bible, uh, maybe out of after John 3, 16. And it's right here. I want to look at it again. It says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And we talked about how unique that really that statement is in, in all of, you know, really history to have a religious leader. We know Jesus is much more than that, right? But uh, from, from that point, point of view, to have a religious leader claim that he himself is the way, not that he's pointing to the way or he's here to show someone the way that, that it's him. And we talked about that Christianity is this incredibly unique uh, thing in the world, phenomenon, we're really going to look at that today more, of, of how Jesus comes into the world and makes these claims about himself that no one else has ever made. And yet people, when they listen to Jesus, there's this, yeah, I can see that, you know? Um, he'd be easily dismissed if it weren't for who he was. He is the way. And that's really fascinating today. But what else is fascinating is you look at um, the New Testament is that it's not just Jesus the way, right? But it's the people of Jesus. And I said this um, a couple of weeks ago, is that this series is gonna be kind of cut into two halves. And so the first half was how you and I as disciples individually meet Jesus and follow him. But the second half is how we walk on this way together. And so that's what today starts. Today starts the second half of the series, walking the Jesus way together. And um, what's really interesting about this is, if you look in the, in the book of Acts, when the disciples are first starting out, you, you notice that they use this term for themselves that's really striking. And I wanna, I wanna dive into that. Look, look what it says here. It says, however, Paul is on defense. He's, he's, he's Paul the apostle's on defense here. He says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of, look at this, the way, which they call a sect. Isn't that interesting, right? That the earliest disciples, they, de they designated themselves as followers of the way. Had you guys ever noticed that reading through Acts? At least six different times, that's how the disciples, that's what they called themselves, followers of the way. And I thought that was just too too coincidental, isn't it? Jesus says he's the way. The early disciples claim to be followers of the way. And I think what you see here is it's not just the name for the group, but it's also a designation of how the group behaves. And we're going to un unpack that today. Are you with me today? Are you guys excited to be in God's house and learn God's word today? This is an, an awesome moment for us. And I, I want to I really kind of dive in to what does it mean or what did it mean to be a follower of the way? And I want to contrast that to today's kind of world. Um, and in order to do that, I was kind of thinking, how can I really kind of start this second series? And what would be the best way to kind of pick, fill out this picture for us? And you guys, if you don't know, I love history, you know, and uh, um, I, I thought, man, I want to give them a couple like historical glimpses into the early strata of the church. And I want to read to you a couple of excerpts of, of what people said about the church of Jesus early in its history. The first one, it comes from around the year 130 AD. So this is about a few generations after Jesus. 
This is early second century, and this is known as the Epistle to Dionysus. And uh, you don't have to, there's no test, but this is the Epistle to Dionysus. And, and here's what's written about Christians. This is the followers of the way. Here's what it says. The Christians inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot each of them has determined, following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share all things uh, with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them a land uh, is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table and not a common bed. They pass their days in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They, they live on earth, but live as citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They, they are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet they are justified. They, they revile and they bless. They are insulted and they repay, repay the insult with honor. And yet when they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they, when they are punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. When they, they, are, they are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, they are persecuted by the Greeks, and yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. I really, really love that kind of snapshot into the earliest strata of, of Christianity. In fact, it reminds me of the song we just sang, doesn't it? Uh, we, we just sang that song, uh, This is the Jesus Way. And it's this kind of this aspirational song. This is how we want to live. This is the Jesus Way. I got one more because I do love history. Uh, there, there was a plague. There was a plague um, that swept through part of the Roman Empire. And, and this, uh, this pastor, he, he was a bishop, um, a Bishop of Alexandria. And he writes about how the Christians responded in this time of plague. And this is Dionysus of Alexandria about the, about the mid-third century. And he writes, during the plague, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of, uh, of one another, headless of danger or heedless of danger, they took care of the sick, attending to their very need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing it on themselves, the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of the presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation. So death in this form is the result of great piety and strong faith. It seems in every way equal to martyrdom. Did you guys catch that? 
This bishop is writing about how the church responded and he, said, he sees just the love of Jesus just rescuing people from disease. In fact, one of the, one of the um, sociologists who write about this, this time in, in, in Roman history, they said that even the, the most you know, simple forms of, of care at a time of a plague would have reduced mortality by two thirds. So even, even though they didn't have you know, modern medicine, even the fact that they would, they would feed those who were sick and too sick to feed themselves and keep people you know, hydrated, that small level of care would reduce mortality by two thirds in the ancient world. So why do I start our series with these two stories? Because guys, it's one thing to hear the teachings of Jesus. It's one thing to come and, and listen to God's word preached but you, when you see how it affects the actual Christian life in the world, it gives us something to say, well, that's what it means to love my neighbor as myself. I want to say this. This is my big idea today. and We're going to unpack this. The way of Jesus is ruled and fueled by love. The way of Jesus is ruled and fueled by love. A couple of, uh, about a week ago, one of my twins came into my uh, room at night and, and uh, <clears throat> we thought she already was in bed. It was about 20 minutes or so after we thought we put her down. And um, she's 13. And so she came in and, and I could tell she'd been crying. And I said, oh, Carson, what's wrong? Well, earlier that day, we were watching little videos of when she was a baby and she was just, you know, in these videos, you know, dancing to music and being silly. And uh, there was this one phase that Carson went through that no matter what you asked her, she would shake her head no. So then Michelle kind of figured that out. And we asked her the funniest questions and she'd always shake her head no. So one of the videos is her, her, Michelle asking, is she treated nice? And she like shakes her head no. You know, do people love you here? And she shakes, it's just hilarious, you know. And so we're watching all these videos and, and we're watching um, this and, you know, having one of those nostalgic moments as a family, right? And then she comes into our room and her little face is swollen up. And I said, baby, what's wrong? And here's what she said, 13. I miss those days. I wasn't stressed out. <laughs> I was just having fun, dancing to music. I wasn't stressed out. Hmm. In his book, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble writes about what he calls the unbearable burden of self-belonging. And he's talking about the effect the modern world has on our souls. And he says that in so many ways, the, the modern world kind of presents us with a lot of artificial things that keep us alive, right? But keep us from thriving. He compares it to what happens to a lion in the zoo. He said, if you've ever watched a lion in a zoo, you see that they pace, you know, they have this pace about them. And, and sometimes they, they, they'll have the best, you know, zoo, you know uh, uh, biologists, you know, animal biologists that will take care of them, give them the nourishment they need. But these lions, they develop what's called zoocosis. It's a, it's a type of psychosis where, where some caged animals just, they, they, they can't survive there. And anyone who's seen a lion in that state knows that there is something just not quite right. You know, the rocks are fake and the cave isn't real and, 
And there's just outside of the cage is, you know, a concrete jungle of, you know, traffic and everything else. And, and this lion, although has he, has he everything he needs to survive, sometimes won't even reproduce. They won't even live because that there's something wrong. You can just see it. And, and this, this man, Alan Noble, he says, really so much of our modern world is that way. We've traded physical illness for mental illness. Think about that. A recent survey says that 43% of our college students felt so depressed that it was difficult for them to function this past year. And 40 or 64% describe what they consider overwhelming anxiety. A sig- he goes on to write, says, a significant segment of our American population find life unbearable. People find their work less meaningful. They find their marriages unfulfilling. And many describe a sense of being completely burned out. Does this resonate with anyone? I think the pandemic accelerated a lot of these trends. People moved thinking that a new location would just fix whatever the internal issue was. But the old adage, wherever you go, there you are, applies. People have tried to say, let me move to blue state or a red state. Maybe if I was around people who thought like me, I would feel better. Maybe if I had a different change of scenery. Uh, Maybe if I worked from home. But there's just something wrong. It's the animal in the zoo. I wonder if in so many ways what Carson said is kind of prophetic, kind of this, I just wish things were simpler. If she isn't onto something, the burden, the unbearable burden of self-belonging. I think we see this also what's happening in our, in our young people's culture in so many ways. Think about this. If I belong to myself, if I actually believe that I have no you know, further allegiance to anyone besides me, if I belong to myself, then I have to define myself. And if I have to define myself, I have to decide who I am. And if I have to decide who I am, I have to decide what will the basis of that identity be. And for most people, when they decide what will the basis of my identity be, they base it on a set of changing internal feelings about themselves. And so they put on identities like you put on clothing to see which one fits. And maybe you find one for a bit, but then just as happens, those of us that have grown up a little bit, you don't stay that size and shape. And so all of a sudden, the identity that you thought fit no longer fits. And so there you go again on this merry-go-round, this chasing your tail of identities. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe Jesus is on to something. Can I get an amen today? Look what he says in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Notice he's, he's making it about himself again. It's I that will give you rest. Me, me. Remember, it's a friendship, not a formula. The path is a person. It's me. I will give you rest. I don't think these words could have greater weight than they do today to this generation, to the anxieties. And, the, and honestly, I think what we are seeing, the implosion of modernity in front of us. We have all we need. And yet we are still knowing there's a gnawing sense that it's not enough. 
Notice what Jesus goes on and he says, take my yoke. That, that means his teaching and his manner of life. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and I will give you rest for your souls. For your souls. That's what we need, soul rest. Anybody else need some soul rest in here this morning? Hey, hey, raise your hand if you know someone who needs some soul rest. Do you guys think you work with some people who need some soul rest today? I think Jesus has something for us. That's why this way series is so critical. It's so critical. How did these early church people we read about a minute ago, how did they live their life in such a unique way that the pagan world stopped and took notice? Let me ask you, does the pagan world stop and take notice today of the church? Does our life, does the way we live seem so countercultural, seem so loving, so beautiful, so in, enticing that the world says, man, there's so many, so much hate spent, you know, you know, spent towards these Christians, but, but the way that they just take it and the way they love in return is just, it's just incredible. I am the way, the truth and the life, Jesus says. I want to dive into that passage a little bit more today because Jesus talks about his commands in this passage in a way that we as the church need to hear in a, in a fresh way. Because guys, we are always looking, as the church always is looking to the culture we live in, and we're asking this question, no matter where you're at in church history, how can I bring the good news to my people? How can I bring the good news to my world? I don't live in the first century. I don't live in the second century. I'm not dealing with plagues that sweep through, right? But I am living in a culture that is anxious, that is worried, that is stressed out, that's tried it all and found it wanting. I'm living in that culture. And Jesus, through the spirit of Jesus, is breathing life into the church and saying, point them to the way, show them the way, live out the way, because they need it. Amen? You with me this morning? Anyone else fired up about this? Come on, nine o'clock crowd. Let's get fired up this morning, okay? Because we have the hope. Do we have the hope? Do we have the truth? Look what Jesus says. Look at John chapter, chapter 14. And then Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And I want to look at the next verse now. We're going to move forward in this passage now. Verse 7, if you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So now Jesus is now going to start to kind of because remember, these are some of the last times that Jesus spends with the disciples. These are the last teachings. He's about to be uh, betrayed. Uh, Judas, in the previous chapter, has already taken off to go broker a deal with the enemy, right? And so this is all at the very end for Jesus. And so he's, he's at, these are some of his last words. And he says here, he says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Philip Philip speaks up, one of the 12. We haven't seen too much of Philip in the gospel, but here he speaks up. And he says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. What I love about this question, again, all these questions, Thomas was the one that asked the question, you know, where are you going? And that's when Jesus says, I am the way, you know, a minute ago. Um, now Philip speaks up and he says, show us the father. And these are, these are these wonderful moments where we get a glimpse into the relationship of Jesus and the disciples. And we can see that these guys are just like us. 
Sometimes they aren't understanding it. They don't get what Jesus is doing. And, and they speak up and they say, Jesus, here's Philip, show us the father. <laughs> and Jesus, he answers this way. He says, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. And so remember, the Jews have this, you know, this, this, these categories of, of where God's at. And so for the Jew, the, the, the father is an invisible deity that lives in different space, right? Lives in this different space. And so he's unapproachable. He's, he's, he's fearful. He lives in this unapproachable light and this fire of the, you know, the judgment of Yahweh. And, and so the, the father is this kind of out there kind of being that sometimes will interact with humans, right? He'll, he'll have what theologians call theophanies where he comes and he comes down to earth. And like when Moses met God at the burning bush, it was a fearful moment, right? Move, remove your shoes. Um, I'm talking to you, Moses, right? If you know your Bible story, there's other moments in Jewish history where God would come. And now Philip is saying, we want to see him. You know, it's kind of in the same frame as Moses. I want to see your glory in Exodus 32 and 33, where he says that. And Jesus kind of looks at Philip, and I can just almost see the expression on Jesus's face. Like, you kidding me right now? Yeah, I've been with you for how long? How are you asking me this? Don't you know anyone that's seen me? You've seen the Father. No good, he goes on and he says, so why are you asking me to show him to you? And then, he, then look at the next verse, verse 10. He says, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father's in me? He says, the words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. I want to point out something here that Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying, listen, I have spoken the words of the Father to you. And I have done the works of the Father to show you. So what Jesus is saying is to his disciples, there are two ways you're seeing the Father. Are you with me? You're seeing the Father in how I speak and what I teach, and you're seeing the Father in what I do. In fact, it's going to be that same kind of template that Jesus will then commission the disciples for the world. Just as Jesus revealed the Father to the disciples, the disciples will reveal the Father and the Son to the world by the way they speak and by what they do. It'll be God with flesh on, God with skin on. It's us walking. We talked about this a few months ago. It's mobile temples places where God dwells. And we see ourselves as these mobile temples moving about, going into the world, places where heaven and earth meet, where God resides. So when people see you, they see him. When they hear you, they hear him. When they experience love from you, they're experiencing love from him. Are you, are you with me this morning, right? The Jesus way. Remember, it's ruled and fueled by love, right? And then uh, Jesus goes on in this passage and he talks about that they will do even greater works than he did. And I think that talks about the scope that, that Jesus's ministry was, was kind of centralized to this little area, this geographic space, you know, of only a 90 miles. But the church of Jesus, the disciples would go to the ends of the world. And then he says this, and this is kind of the heart today of our sermon. He says this a few verses later in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You guys, I want, I want, you, to, I want you just to let that 
sink in. If that's all we talked about today, it would be enough. Jesus is going to make a connection here that I think blew these guys' minds. Because I think it's easy for humans, and I think it was easy for Jewish uh, followers of Yahweh especially, to to really make obedience kind of detached from relationship. Now, God never wanted it that way. And the the apostle, I'm sorry, the prophets of the Old Testament that deeply walked with God, we see this in the Psalms of David. There's this intimacy with God that's evident there. But I think for the average Jewish follower, right, it was just easy to kind of unhitch the relationship from the obedience. And Jesus wants to make sure that's connected deeply. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me. Here it is again. Love is the rule and the fuel for the Jesus way. It's the rule and it's the fuel. He says, if you love me, he says, um, ask anything that the father wants. And he will, he says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So he's speaking of the Holy Spirit here. Uh, following a, a commentator that I, I read this week called Dale, uh, named Dale Bruder, he says that if you look at the Greek, there's, there's something that you could actually kind of place in here to make it a little clearer. Because Jesus isn't speaking of just ambiguous commands. He's speaking of these special commands. And so you could read it this way. You could read, if you love me, you will keep my special commands, my unique commands that are special to Jesus, that were unique to him. And where are these commands? Where are these special commands? Well, they're embedded in the chapter just before. They're embedded in chapter 13. Because recall, Jesus had just had the Lord's Supper with these disciples an hour or so earlier, right? And at that table of the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives them these final two commands. And the first one is that they believe in him, that they believe in Jesus. And then, and then we got to kind of pull that apart. What does that mean to really believe in Jesus? And Jesus, I think, demonstrated what that means. And I want to show you what it was. I want you guys to use your imaginations for a second and put yourselves at the final supper with Jesus, the last supper. I want you to put yourself around the table with Jesus. I want you to sit there with your feet reclined, their dirty feet at first, because none of the disciples was willing to clean the feet of the other disciple. None of them would do the job of a servant. And they hadn't forgotten to appoint a servant to wash feet before they went into their meal. So these disciples are all around the table and their feet are dirty. And I want you to picture Jesus standing up suddenly. And he has this robe on and he takes the robe off. Hmm. This robe of, of authority as the leader. And he takes that robe off. And he walks over and there's a towel and he ties this towel carefully around his waist. So you got to picture Jesus with a towel around his waist, his leader robe now placed over on the side. And if you were to walk into that room at that moment and you didn't know anyone, but you just saw the people, someone said, hey, who's the servant in the room? You'd point to Jesus with the towel around his waist. And then Jesus walks to each of these disciples and he starts to, with that water and that that 
basin. He starts to wash their feet. He gets to Peter. Look at this. Gets to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? This is too much. I mean, Jesus has done all kinds of things that have surprised the disciples and they've maybe made them feel uncomfortable at times, you know? Maybe his kind of startling rebuke of the, of the religious leaders, like, oh, wow, that was, that was rough, Jesus, you know? Like, we're going to get killed if you keep doing that, right? All these moments with Jesus, but now they get to this moment. This is an intimate moment. This is too much. Are you going to wash my feet, Jesus? Remember, Peter was one of the three that was present on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration who saw the true identity of the glory of the Son of God, whom the Father says, this is my beloved Son, hear him. And he takes that, and he's washing those feet, he gets to Peter, and then Peter Jesus replies, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. And then Peter protests in verse 8, you will never wash my feet. And notice what Jesus says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. What is Jesus saying? Peter, I need to love you and you need to let me. Believing in Jesus is this intimate reception of his love that is so disarming, it almost hurts. It's so revealing and uncomfortable, you, you want to, to look away. It's like the brightest sun bl- bl- just blinding your eyes that makes you want to turn away. It's too much. It's too good. It's too loving. I'm too dirty. I've done too much. You can't wash. You're too pure. You're too wonderful. Are you going to wash my feet? My feet? And Jesus says, if you don't let me, you can't have any part of me. He puts his hands on your shoulders and he says, I know everything you've done. I love you. Let me love you. Let me love you. Let me love you. Why don't we let him love us? Why don't we let Jesus in? What is it? What is it that keeps Jesus out? Is it just shame? Is it like, you just don't understand. I just... I, I always, I don't want to be in the spotlight. I want somebody else to be out there. Is it shame? Is it, is it an, a, a feeling of unworthiness? Is it a feeling of, 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 you know, no, I just, I can't accept it. It's too much. Or is it pride? Is it pride? Because sometimes we're like, hey, I, I don't, you know, hey, I'm good. You don't need to wash me. I'm, you know, wash Chris. I mean, he needs washing, right? Like, I mean, you guys get what I'm saying? Like, is it pride, right? Is it shame? Is it pride? Is it unbelief, a heart of unbelief? Can Jesus really make a difference? Can he really change me? I don't, I'm not so sure. That was one of the two special commands. Believe, which means let me love you. So what's the second? Here it is. And Michelle read it. And this fueled the church. Here it is. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. 
So you must love one another. That same love, that same almost disarming, but uh, over the top, kind of too much love that, that, that you've had a hard time even receiving. That love, like that love that I loved you with, that, that love that I showed you where I, the, the master, I, I, the one that had it all, gave it up so for love's sake, I could redeem and save you. I want you to have that same love. I want you to, you to love the world with that same way, that same way that says it's not about my status. It's not about what I have. It's not about my, my, you know, my privileges. I'm instead going to, just like Jesus, I'm going to lay that aside and I'm going to get down and I'm going to wash the feet of the most unlikely and the most unlovely. You see, that's how the Jesus way changed the world, church. That's how they did it. They changed the world. But not trying to become the center of everyone's attention. To grab the platform and the power positions of culture. They didn't force the Roman Empire to its knees. They loved it to its knees. And pretty soon, the Christians that were killed in the Colosseum. There are now crosses representing Jesus in the same Colosseum. If you go to Rome today, there are churches dotting that entire city. Christ is king and he rules. That's how it happens. That's how we change this world. We change the world the way Jesus changed it, by loving people just like Jesus loved us. So let me ask you a question. What if we loved people that way? Really? What if that's how we loved our, our spouses, our neighbors, our coworkers? What if we were known by our love? What if we were known by the way we just, like it's like that one letter, the manner of life, their manner of life is so, is so attractive. What if we looked at a world that is just imploding and instead of throwing rocks at their folly, we embraced and loved them. Those who are confused about their genders and their sexual orientations and all the things that we can shake our head at and say, what confusion? What if instead we walked up to them and say, I got an alternative for you. I got an identity that's solid, that's so full of love that will heal you from the inside out. Let me show you the path. It's a person and he'll love you with a love you've never seen. It's so pure and so good. What if Christians were known for what we're for, not what we're against? What if we loved even those who vote so different than we do and think so different than we do? What if our reflex was to pray and not to laugh? Can we stand together? Man, that's a hard sermon, huh? Stand together with me. Let's absorb this. Let's absorb this together, church. I want to give you uh, something that I think is just a really good visual that will help. And it starts with Jesus loves us. Right there. 
and we let him love us. And then it leads to us loving Jesus. So Jesus loves us or Jesus, you can make it personal. He loves me. And then I just love him back. And then because I love him, go to the next one. Here we go. We, when we love him, we're going to obey him. That's how that works. And then when I obey him, I'm going to be loving others. So here's the, it all, it, like I said, it's ruled and fueled by love. And so here's what I want you to think about today. Like wherever you're at on this cycle, and maybe right now you're like, you know, I don't have much love in my heart like I, it, I just, the idea, some of the people I work with, like treating them differently seems like Mount, climbing Mount Everest or this marriage I'm in is so hard. I just can't imagine like being different than I am. She's hurt me so deeply or he's, he's, he's betrayed me so, so badly. Whatever it might be, whatever the wounds are that you're carrying this morning, church. And here's the idea, here's the point. When I'm feeling like my love tank is so empty, I have to go back to the source of it all. I have to go back to that table where here comes Jesus with his towel and his wash basin. And I am reminded again of all the things he's loved me through and forgave me from. And I say, Jesus, if you could love me like that, then I can love my neighbors and even my enemies.